I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Sarah Perry on her latest novel, Melmoth. Sarah Perry was born in Essex in 1979. Her first novel, After Me Comes the Flood, was long-listed for the Guardian First Book Award and the Folio Prize, and won the East Anglian Book of the Year Award in 2014. Her next novel, The Essex Serpent, was a number one bestseller in hardback, Waterstone's Book of the Year 2016, and the British Book Awards Book of the Year 2017. Her work has been translated into 20 languages, and Sarah's latest novel, Melmoth, is out now in paperback, which we're going to be talking about today. Sarah, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. So, first of all, how would you describe this novel? I recall referring to it as a gothic horror novel from the start um, to slight raised eyebrows from those who advise me since the establishment tends to take a dim view of any literature which could comfortably be called genre fiction. I prefer to think of myself as having the ability um, to make people see that anything that can be categorised as genre fiction can have all the qualities that F.R. Levis so helpfully defined as being, you know, a characteristic of literature. So I do call it a gothic horror novel. I think of it as the last in a gothic trilogy, different from my first two novels in its willingness to fully embrace the gothic to a almost surreal extent, almost a supernatural extent. But I hope it's also a novel of ideas. So let's talk about where the the idea first came from to write this novel. Because first of all, we should say that it's the character Melmoth is one that exists in a different form in literature already. Yes and no. So I had enormous fun playing with kind of intertextuality and fragments uh, with this book. So there is a novel that was published in 1820 by Charles Robert Maturin, an impoverished Irish vicar, who declared to his friend Sir Walter Scott that he would write a novel so horrific that it would out-Herod all the Herods. And he wrote Melmoth the Wanderer, uh, in which a man has sold his soul to the devil for an extra 150 years on earth, swiftly realises this was a ludicrous thing to do, and tries to persuade people to change places with him. And it's like a matryoshka doll of kind of nest narratives. So I decided years and years ago when I was young and arrogant and thought I could do these things that I would do a feminist tribute to this book and make my Melmoth a woman. But in order to give myself liberty and to play I then kind of retrofitted a biblical legend 
uh, which is of a woman called Melmoth who denied Christ, and because she denied Christ, she is cursed to wander the earth. And in my novel, that legend is the institutionary legend that inspired Maturin, and I've been really thrilled with the number of people who think that that's a real thing. So, <laughs> so how does changing the the central figure to a woman change that character do you think there's some really complex and difficult things around this because it was always going to be insufficient to change the pronouns Mm -hmm. and to just say this is a woman she has a frock that's not enough so there were two things here one of them was the nature of her seductiveness which is sort of more appealing and more emotional and softer than Melmoth the Wanderer's seductiveness, which is, uh, you know, frankly a touch on the rapey side and frightening. So I wanted her to be frightening and alluring in a kind of believably, as it were, feminine way, mindful of the fact that as soon as we start talking about feminine or masculine qualities, we're straying into gender essentialism, which I dislike and so on. But there was also a desire to make it intrinsically feminist by demonstrating that her legend, her curse that I invented is a curse visited upon women in that they are only able to watch so she lied and said she had not seen the risen Christ because she knew she wouldn't be believed because women are never believed and in the actual gospels the women who did say they'd seen the risen Christ weren't believed the men didn't believe them so there is something sort of political in there about having the idea that you know she's she's cursed because of her oppressed state rather than her kind of biology if that makes sense so as well as the as well as the titular character melmoth who's you know been around for a couple of thousand years there are a couple of other present day protagonists in the story um who I want to talk about in a moment but also the book consists of a series of historical first-person narratives Mm -hmm. that one of those characters is basically collecting um, for reasons that we may get to. Um, So I wanted to talk about that element first of all, that those, and I guess writing those historical documents, because they're all written in different, you know, different time periods, different characters, and so different registers. And I wanted to talk first of all about why you wanted to do that, but also that, that sort of process of having to create all of those different, you know, completely believable different people in different times. So there's a number of things here. The reason There's two reasons why. One of them is noble and one of them is ignoble. Uh, The noble reason is that I wanted my Melmoth to bear witness to denied atrocities, to stuff that we don't tend to think about. So I chose the Armenian Genocide. Um, The Armenian Genocide is, as you almost certainly know, denied officially. And, in fact, I remember going on front row on Radio 4 on publication day of the hardback last year and the wonderful Samira Ahmed, who interviewed me, just before the red light went on indicating that we were live, leant forward and said, incidentally, as it's the BBC, I can't say Armenian genocide. You say what you like, but I can't. And it went live. And sure enough, during the interview, she said, and and this novel deals with the Armenian massacre, she sort of leant forward and I said, the genocide, yes. And I also dealt with the expulsion of the German-speaking Czechs out of Prague, which happened in 1945 after the Potsdam Agreement, which was ethnic cleansing, which nobody likes to think about because we know who the villains were. So that was the noble reason. The ignoble reason is that I have a very, very low boredom threshold and I like to entertain myself. And so all of my novels are fragmentary um, to a certain degree um, and I thought that it would be more playful and more fun for me and hopefully for the reader to inhabit these different voices different Lexis, you know the difference between a sort of uh, disaffected 20 year old 1920s artist in Egypt and um, a horrified man in 16th century Essex is a completely different diction and that's good fun to do You mentioned there that one of the, the historical elements takes place in Prague mm. and also the present day protagonist is 
living in Prague. Um, so a lot of the novel is set in Prague. And I wanted to talk about why Prague, which I think to anybody is only a, a question that sort of for anybody that hasn't been to Prague, anybody that has been to Prague would know why. Yes, because it's yeah, a, a yeah. sort of gothic city. Yeah, absolutely. I've never been. I am a child of the East. And, you know, if you cut me, I'd bleed Essex marsh water. I don't even like being in West London. You know, I like to be in East Anglia specifically, born in Essex and I live in Norfolk. And I knew there was a risk of treading water, treading marsh water, and um, only writing books set in East Anglia. And I thought, no, I have to break out of this. And I was casting about for other forms of Gothic environment because my novels treat sense of place as a character. So I like to think that my novels could only happen because they are set in the place they're set. And I thought, if I elect to set a novel in a different Gothic city... How would that affect the text? And I've wondered about Vienna, wondered about American Southern Gothic. And then I was sitting at my desk and the phone rang and the chief executive of the Norwich Writing Centre said, Sarah, I don't suppose you're thinking of writing a novel set in Prague because there's an opportunity to apply for a residency. And I said, I I am actually. (laughs) I am now. From that moment. (laughs) And I actually didn't get, I wasn't first choice for the residency, but they were generous enough to give me second place. Mm -hmm. And so I lived in Prague for two months and wandered around chasing jackdaws in the snow. And the novel couldn't be, as, as you know, you obviously identified, it couldn't be what it is mm-hmm. had I not been there. So um, so let's talk about Helen Franklin, who is, um, if this novel does have a protagonist, then it's her. Who is she and why is she in Prague? She is a very drab, small, boring, early middle-aged English woman. With You're really friends. selling this. I really am. <laughs> because I'm a little bit reluctant to take part in the idea that women can lead a novel if they are either A, devastatingly charming and vibrant and funny and glorious and amazing, or B, sort of fragile, slender women with sort of unsatisfactory sex lives and, you know, there's a lot of these two mm-hmm. polar opposites and they both fetishize a kind of female experience in a way that's increasingly problematic. Both of them are very appealing to patriarchal ideas of femininity, desirability. You know, on the one hand, the kind of manic pixie dream girl, tortured little fragile internet waif. And then on the other side, you have the tremendous charismatic boyish woman that Mm -hmm. I kind of put into the Essex Serpent. And I thought, you know, women's experience is vital and fascinating and of value, even when from the outside, it doesn't appeal to all of that stuff. So playfully and um, in a desire to wind people up I created someone who is not the kind of person that leads a novel but absolutely is because she has done something terrible and she begins to think that Melmoth is watching her and I hope that's appealing because you know I'm very dull most of us are Um, And I think it's quite appealing to think that boring as we all are, we also contain reserves of kind of transgression and fear and uh, redemption and all the rest of it. And she has a friend, Carol, who is the the person that's collecting these narratives. He lives in Prague with his wife, Taya, who's just recently had a stroke Mm. and... Carol is basically, I guess, struggling to cope with that, isn't he? Yeah, I I wrote this book during a period of quite bad health. I had a, and have, an autoimmune disease that is not curable and I had surgery on my spine and went through a degree of 
rather unpleasant pain and medication. And it led to me thinking about that and about how that alters your sense of self and your place in the world. It's actually terribly humiliating to be physically incapacitated. I had to walk with a cane for a while, uh, which I found desperately humiliating because we value youth and beauty and strength. And I think I wanted to visit on Carol this rather inadequate man in some ways. I like him very much, but, you know, he could have done better. Um, And all my anxieties around my own status, changing from young and healthy and fit and strong to someone physically very compromised for a long time. I think it's probably one of the very few times that I've allowed the process of writing a novel to be therapeutic for myself, which I tend to think is not a very good reason to write a book. But it worked then, I think. Well, I was going to talk about the, the health aspects towards the end of the interview, but we may as well do it now as, as you've raised it. You wrote a, a brilliant article in The Guardian about how during... not This book wasn't necessarily written at this period because obviously you had other things on your mind, but this health issue came up during the writing of this book. And, and of course, the Gothic novel itself is part of that, coincidentally or not, romantic tradition, you know, where the people that were writing them were probably taking laudium or opium yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, I guess let's talk about that tradition within the gothic fiction, first of all. Sure. I, I actually did write it while all that was going on. And I don't know how, but I did. There were periods where I couldn't walk or stand and um, I would put my laptop next to my head and try to dictate into it because the impulse to write was stronger then than it's ever been, actually. And I was very, very heavily medicated. It's sort of an opium novel in some ways. One of the things that I discovered, not just around gothic writers in particular, but as you say, the romantics in particular and those kind of flights of imagination, is that the literature of drug addiction is actually a literature of pain. And many of the great writers and artists that we romanticise as being radical anti-establishment, you know, types, you know, taking their heroin or their laudanum according to the century because they want to fly in the face of convention is not true. Almost always they were in severe pain. Coleridge was in severe pain, for example. He had a bad knee and a bad eye. I always use the example of Kurt Cobain, who we think of sort of inhabiting this idea of the kind of grunge and heroin chic. And he had very, very severe and savage bowel pain, stomach pain. And so I began to understand that the literature of drug addiction and the literature of pain is ecstatic. Because when you're in pain that severe, it is in a way elevating because you can't think about anything else. So all of the ordinary day-to-day things that might take you away from your imagination, you've got to do the washing up, you've got to put your, you can't do any of that anyway. All you can think about is your suffering. That in itself is kind of artistic. And then when you are relieved from pain, or as I think of it more properly, you can feel the pain but you don't care anymore, that is also ecstatic. And there's a reason why they used to call opium elevation it sort of does something to your mind so there's a, a really interesting link between in Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree you know this kind of great flight of fancy and the fact that he both suffered and was elevated by suffering and by drugs and all my life I've been such a prig about drug taking and then I ended up on like four different quite solidly addictive medications that I had to be weaned off 
<laughs> over a period of several weeks. So uh, pride cometh before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction, as the Bible says. <laughs> Our cat's on gabapentin at the moment. Oh, really? And it's just starting to refuse to take them. So at least I know now that oh, there's a, no. you know, I can keep hold of them myself. <laughs> think, for yeah, yeah. Recreational purposes. Um, to what extent, I and mean, this is an impossible question, I know, and I'm sure you've been asked it before, but to what extent would the book have been different if that hadn't have happened? I think there's two vital things here. One of them is that no sensible person who wants to be taken seriously as a novelist devotes a scene to, for example, a haunted flock of jackdaws flying through a cafe window, heralding the approach of a 2,000-year-old cursed woman. Um, And I knew that to write a book in that mode and to be so gleeful about that kind of thing was to cock a snook at the literary establishment that doesn't like adjectives, never mind cursed women. So... I think I was too high to care at the time. The second thing is that the book does deal with bodily trauma a lot and I have reservations about novels that write pornographically about suffering and that play to that lowest common denominator desire to say, he did what? He did what? And I think because I had suffered, it made me feel that I could write about suffering ethically because it wasn't just prurient, Mm -hmm. it was um, taking part in it. So I think probably without what happened to me, it would have been more muted, actually. So I don't regret a single scream. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Sarah Perry, and we're talking about her latest novel, Melmoth. And Sarah, to kick off this second half, I want to, I want to look at the, the idea of witnessing which is fundamentally what Melmoth is forcing to do and you know is basically trying to pass on to 
the novel is both about witnessing atrocity, but also, I guess, the passing on of knowledge from one person to another. Um, so let's talk about that idea, witnessing mm. atrocity. So I recall very strongly the launch of the Essex Serpent in 2016. And on that day, or possibly the day before, there was the massacre at the Orlando nightclub. And 52 LGBT people were just gunned down for not being heterosexual, effectively. And around about that time, you would open your Twitter account and there would be a poor Syrian child drowned on a Mediterranean beach or footage of ISIS captives being beheaded in the desert and I wanted to give up writing. I felt I was fiddling while Rome burned. What's the point of turning out entertainment when my such intellect as I have could have been deployed to some use? And the only way I could convince myself to carry on writing novels is to convince myself that novels matter too. And I was very struck by Primo Levi and If This Is A Man saying that, you know, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but he urges people to bear witness and he suggests that the act of bearing witness has moral virtue. So I thought if I could write a novel that now, here and now in 2019, 2018 as it was then, urged people to bear witness, it's not enough but people rarely act unless they have witnessed first. But I also wanted to challenge people to consider the power that we have as individuals in a collective. It's very easy to despair. I mean, we all, everyone listening to this will have felt that <laughs> in the last two or three years. As we look at the political class, as we look at what's happening, the absence of shame, the absence of repentance of any kind, and it's very easy to despair and to give up. And I think what this novel suggests, I hope what it suggests, is that the act of bearing witness and consequently passing on knowledge, as you say, empowers individuals to act wisely and benevolently in the collective. So there's characters in this book who fail to see what they're doing. So in the, in the period in the Armenian Genocide, the monsters are not... They don't have horns and forked tails and cloven hooves. They're civil servants who sign a document and who post a letter. And that small act is devastating. And the converse of that is if you hadn't signed the letter, then by that small act, it can be the reverse of devastating. It could be constructive. So I was also really struck by a quote from JFK, actually, and he said, the ignorance of one voter in a democracy imperils the security of us all. So it's a book about that kind of um, how much we matter, how much all of us matter, even if you're small and boring. Nobody would pick you out of a crowd. And to what extent then does that also follow in, in the decision to to write this within a gothic novel, which is, you know, more so than your previous novels, a genre which is an entertainment? The history of the gothic is intensely, intensely political. So what you find in the gothic is that it tends to reach a resurgence at points of ideological and political upheaval. So the first flowering of the gothic, it's no coincidence that it came at the time of the French Revolution. And at a time when it seemed every single social moray, every idea of what is right and what is wrong on all of the natural orders could be turned upside down, the gothic began to flower. And it's literature reflecting that. It's reflecting the fact that you think you know how novels work. You think you know who the sinners are. You think you know who the good are. Well, here's sympathy for the devil. Here's laws being turned upside down. Here's all your worst fears and most hidden emotions being brought up to light and you're being made to enjoy them. So it's incredibly radical as a genre and incredibly um, kind of politically charged. Then you see it having another flowering post-Darwin. Again, the world turned upside down and literature follows. And we're seeing more of the Gothic now in the last two or three years. You have Andrew Michael Hurley, you have Jen Ashworth's incredible novel, Fell. You have the Gothic-inflected feminist work of Daisy Johnson, for example. 
And I think it's no coincidence that the Gothic that deals with all of this stuff in a way that's entertaining mm-hmm. and not didactic is starting to kind of have another resurgence. So that's what I love about the Gothic. It has its cake and eats it, you know. It's deeply serious and very silly and that's why it's so subversive. And, I mean, you've already alluded to this, but obviously right now we're, you know, we're in a period of time where it's not just seeing the distant Syrian child washed up on a Mediterranean beach. But, you know, nationalism is rising mm-hmm. in our own country. Yeah. You know, we are right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. It's, ho- it's absolutely horrifying. And I think literature as a whole is tending towards a reflection of that, whether it wants to or not. You know, I'm fortunate enough to have lots of friends who are novelists and many of us are grappling with this. You know, are there monsters? And if there are, what will we do about it? Um, Melissa Harrison's novel, All Among the Barley... Mm-hmm. Um, it's my favourite novel of last year. Yeah, and it really it really grappled with the idea of, you know, the English countryside being a place where the mm-hmm. most sinister um, and troubling elements of nationalism can kind of start to flower. So... You know, in 50 years' time, there's going to be modules taught in every university in the UK about Brexit literature and, you know, how we responded to it, what, for what good it'll do, you know. <laughs> I wanted to expand a bit on the idea of writing about evil, about these atrocities. And you mentioned in the first part about, you know, feeling emboldened to do that because you had a period of, of suffering yourself. But at the same time, it is still... Let's talk about the idea to include some of that material in, again, what's fundamentally an entertainment, the back and forth you had with yourself over whether or not that was appropriate? Um, I think of this as being a kind of radical leftover from the doctrine that I was brought up in. So I had a very religious upbringing. I was myself very religious until my mid-twenties. And I was very much taught in the concept of original sin. And, um, you know, in the doctrine of original sin would suggest that none of us is worse than anyone else. We're all sinners and we're all capable of doing ghastly things, which sounds very depressing. But I tend to think of it on the obverse now, like a tossed coin, that we are equally capable of doing these terrible things. Yes, but we're also all equally able to access redemption and grace and to turn things around. What really troubles people, I think, about this idea is that I'm proposing that there are monsters and there aren't devils because the moment you say these people are devils trump is a devil johnson is a devil you're exculpating yourself if you start to think of them as being humans like you and me who have by a series of failures along the re- along the way catastrophically failed that's really worrying because then we start to think oh okay so actually we are all potentially failures in that sense. Well, you're also exculpating them because you're saying it's not their fault either. No, I don't think I am. I think I'm saying that not... Well, I mean, if you say it's their devil's fault, I'm saying it's everybody's fault. Mm. And in a way, you exculpate them more if you say they're devils because you're saying they can't help it. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so what what I'm saying is, no, everybody has equal moral Mm -hmm. responsibility and they're therefore, in a way, more damnable... Because at any point, they could choose to tell the truth, just as you and I can, and they're electing not to. So it's a strange way of looking at the world that, like, on the surface is far more compassionate than thinking them monstrous, but actually it's not. It's harder on us as well, you know. We talked as well about the idea of, you know, this being a novel of not just witnessing, but but of passing on the knowledge, so keeping that knowledge alive that these denied atrocities often have have happened but i want to talk as well about you know the toll that that takes on people because 
passing on the knowledge in this novel is not necessarily a good thing. That's what people are... They're trying to pass on the knowledge of Melmoth's existence to somebody else to yeah. unburden themselves. Yeah. I was vaguely reminded of... Have you seen that film, It Follows? Yes. Which is, yeah, you know, yeah, basically about, you know, this idea of, like, you're it sort of thing. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Passing yeah. a thing yeah. on. And just the fact that, you know, knowing this knowledge takes, you know, as I said, a massive toll on the people once they know it. Yes, and I suppose ultimately what happens is that Melmoth confronts them with the consequences of their actions and with what they have done. And because she is villainous, her proposal is... And she's villainous and she's desperately lonely. And so she says, I know what you've done. If everybody else knew, they would loathe you. But I don't. I love you. Come with me. And so what you have is this confrontation between hopelessness and hope. So Helen or whoever must choose between giving up hope and going away with Melmoth, even under circumstances where giving up hope seems to be a very reasonable thing to do, as one of the stories, or to not give up hope and to believe that they have a chance at redemption. And um, I think that the central story, which I won't, spoil the central to that theme is the one set at the second world war um, at the end of the second world war where Josef Hoffman as a boy it has to choose between an act of mercy and an act of redemption which places himself in danger but may be redemptive or cowardice which will also save his own skin so I'm hoping that the overall if there's a message from the book it's not my job to but if there is a message from the book is that there is generally speaking a chance for grace at some point that's a good point for us to finish talking about the book but can I get you to read yes, a bit of, of course. it to finish Thank us you. off uh, I'm going to read it has two openings which I have a habit of doing um, so I'm going to read a short letter which begins the book and then some scene setting in Prague J.A. Hoffman care of the National Library of the Czech Republic December 2016 my dear Dr. Prejan how deeply I regret that I must put this document in your hands and so make you the witness to what I have done. Many times you said to me, Joseph, what are you writing? What have you been doing all this time? My friend, I would not tell you because I have been the watchman at the door. But now the pen is dry, the door is open, and something's waiting there that will turn what small regard you have for me to ruins. I can bear that well enough since I never deserved your regard, but I am afraid for you because beyond the threshold only one light shines and it's far more dreadful than the dark. Ten days have passed and all the while I have been thinking only of my fault, my fault, my most grievous fault. I do not sleep. I feel her eyes on me and with hope and dread I turn but find I'm all alone. I walk through the city in the dark and think I hear her footsteps and I find that I'm holding out my hand but she offered me her hand once and I doubt she'll offer it again. I leave this document in the custody of the library with instructions that it should be delivered to you when next you are at your desk. Forgive me, she is coming. J.A. Hoffman Part 1 Look, it is winter in Prague. Night is rising in the mother of cities and over her thousand spires. Look down at the darkness around your feet in all the lanes and alleys as if it were a soft black dust swept there by a broom. Look at the stone apostles on the old Charles Bridge and at all the blue-eyed jackdaws on the shoulders of St John of Nepomuk. Look, she is coming over the bridge, head bent down to the whitening cobblestones. Helen Franklin, 42, neither short nor tall, her hair neither dark nor fair. On her feet, boots which serve from November to March and her mother's steel watch on her wrist. 
a table salt glitter of hard snow falling on her sleeve, her shoulder, her neat coat belted, as colourless as she is, nine years worn. Across her breast a narrow satchel strap, in the satchel her afternoon's work, instructions for the operation of a washing machine translated from German into English, and a green uneaten apple. What might commend so drab a creature to your sight when overhead the low clouds split and the upturned bowl of a silver moon pours milk out on the river? Nothing at all. Nothing that is but this. These hours, these long minutes of this short day, must be the last when she knows nothing of Melmoth, when thunder is just thunder and a shadow only darkness on the wall. If you could tell her now, step forward, take her wrist and whisper... Perhaps she'd pause, turn pale, and in confusion fix her eyes on yours. Perhaps look at the lamp-lit castle high above the Voltava and down at white swans sleeping on the riverbank, then turn on her half-inch heel and beat back through the coming crowd. But, oh, it's no use. She'd only smile, impassive, half-amused, this is her way, shake you off and go on walking home. So I've been talking to Sarah Perry. We've been talking about her novel Melmoth, which is out now in the UK from Serpent's Tale in paperback, just ready for the winter. Sarah, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.